You're listening to Notes from Norwich. Welcome to episode 19 of Notes from Norwich. I'm JM. I'm here with Marguerite and Chris. Um, how are you guys doing? Really good. I'm good. I spent uh, a good part of this last weekend uh, mulching all of my perennial beds, getting ready for the colder winter. And I just love mulching. It's so satisfying. Your hands smell good afterwards from the cedar, and it just looks so much neater. So I'm I'm trying to there, – there must be some spiritual parallel to putting down mulch on a garden bed, but I haven't found it yet. I'm sure. Were you the one I was talking to? You're expanding your lavender bed? Yes. Is that you? Yeah, we've got 20 lavender plants along one side of our patio. And this winter, I'm going to be um, installing the second half of the bed that goes around the other side of the patio. And so we've got 40 lavender cuttings, uh, hopefully, taking root in our bay window right now. So 40 of those, hopefully 20 of them will make it good and strong through the winter, and then we'll plant them out. And if we have more, then I'll just give them away to people. So so well, they were beautiful. They are beautiful. I mean, I I was just amazed at how magnificent they were. That bed um, is along, it's on the South side of our house Mm -hmm. and it's a slightly raised bed with some kind of like rocky soil in it. I don't think the people who lived here before us ever did anything to improve the soil. So it's like just brutally hot in the summer because there's no shade. And so it just gets hit by, you know, 80, 90 degree summer sun for 16 hours a day at the height of the summer. And we've planted things there the last couple of years and they just get, scorched they just we just can't water them fast enough so this time i said i'm going to put in mediterranean plants so english lavender it is um love it so hopefully it'll be hardy enough to get through the winter but we'll see so it smells fantastic i believe it and i found out that lavender is one of the many 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 plants associated with our lady so i'm going to be hopefully moving the statue of mary that we have in our yard to the corner of the lavender bed once I put the second half in. Having a little outdoor Marian shrine for praying. Yeah. Got Francis and Mary out there. So, yeah. Anyway, this has been Lavender Talk with um, (laughs) (laughs) chapter um, chapters 40 and 41, maybe? That's 41. 41. Only 41. Oh, oh, oh. We are pivoting out of the discourse on sin into the discourse on prayer. No more sin. Well. Well. (laughs) Wouldn't go that far. Yeah. All right. So what do we have to say about prayer? Well, Julian begins with, after this, I guess, meaning after all the sin, our Lord showed regarding prayer and in this showing two applications of our Lord's meaning. One is rightful prayer. The other is sure trust. So Julian is talking about, basically she's talking about how to pray. And I think we've all heard a lot of people in our lives 
asking this exact question. How am I supposed to pray? I don't know how to pray. In fact, one time, and this would have been back in my 20s, I marched into our rector's office unannounced, without an appointment, those were the days, eh? and said, I don't know how to pray. And here I am decades later. <laughs> anyway, so. You've got it all figured out now. I, absolutely. Absolutely. But the funny thing is, he said to me, oh, I, Marguerite, I thought you were a good prayer. And that's really all I remember from the conversation, that, um, that statement of his. Hmm. I wonder if you intimidated him. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Okay. Absolutely. In my 20s. Come on, Chris. No. I don't know. Marguerite, in your 20s, barging into a rector's office. (laughs) Yeah. But it's a a question, especially in the pandemic. Like, I've, um, early in the pandemic, when we were doing all these pastoral calls to all our parishioners, trying to feel like, what do you need from right now from the church? So many of them were asking, like, how do I pray? Um, So many people... I mean, these are even people who come to mass regularly. Um, there's just a, 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 a hunger for like learning how to pray. Um, it's actually one yeah. of the reasons why I'm, uh, why I decided actually before this pandemic hit, I was thinking, you know, I think I'm going to be putting more effort intentionally into um spiritual direction and now i'm doing the certificate in it because the longer that i've been a priest the more that i realize that my own personal passion is uh both for myself and for guiding other people is specifically in the area of prayer what it is what the dynamic is what the techniques are what the difficulties are um and what i found frankly, in a lot of parish ministry is that all the administrative stuff and all the liturgical stuff and all the pastoral conversations that are a little bit about prayer, but are mostly not about prayer. They feel like they push all the stuff that I really want to be focusing off on off to the edges. And I really want to bring that to the center. Cause I think, you know, um, the, the, the fundamentals of prayer are actually the fundamental mission of the church, which is, you know, what does it say in our catechism that the mission of the church is to, um, Jan's got it right there. He's looking it up. I can tell. <laughs> Give it a shot first. It's page eight, eight something in the, this uh, to, um, reconcile humanity in God. Something like that. It's in the prayer book. (laughs) It's the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ. Yes. And how does the church pursue its mission? The church pursues its mission as it prays and worships, proclaims the gospel and promotes justice, peace, and love. Prayer and worship is the first bit mentioned. Yeah. And I think we do a great job in the Episcopal Church of Worship, some places better than others. We do a great job in the Episcopal Church of advocating for 
peace and justice, some places better than others. And I think that we are not as good as we could be about promoting um, or talking about prayer as a sort of a mature field of study. We talk about prayers. So we'll offer workshops in like how to pray the Anglican rosary or how to pray the office or um, how to pray novenas or whatever. But, but we don't talk about, you know, what it means. I, I've, I've rarely run into an Episcopal church that talks about um, the, the consolations and desolations of prayer, the times of dryness, the times of ecstasy, the times when it feels like God is absent, what, uh, what your expectations should be in prayer. What are you, what are you doing when you sit down for a period of contemplation or meditation? Um, this is all this kind of subtlety that all the spiritual writers write about. And just kind of, it's, it's locked away too much. Um, and we, people we who want to find yeah. it can, e can easily find it. But, um, I think, you know, <laughs> we, we should be bringing it to the masses. Wouldn't it be great if every parish was, was like an elementary school for prayer and would then give you stepping stones for progress in the spiritual life? So. I think I think especially learning to talk about the dryness and the desolations um, is is an important step for us to take. I when I when I see parishes and Episcopalians talking about prayer, there's often a um, a fronting of the. Uh, the positive experiences of prayer. And I, I do the same thing all the time. Like when I tweet about the daily office, I, all my tweets are like the, the things I find consolation in about the day's readings or Psalms or, um, there's less talk of the barrenness and dryness. And that's something like Julian, something I appreciate about the way she starts this treatise on prayer is that she jumps right into the, the barrenness and is very upfront about the fact that she experiences the barrenness. So she's yeah. like, rightful prayer and sure trust. Here, let's start. Our trust is not always complete. Sometimes yeah. it sucks. And why? it has sucked for me. And why is our trust not complete? For we are not certain that God hears us. Because of our unworthiness, as it seems to us. And because we feel absolutely nothing. Friori are frequently as barren and dry after our prayers as we were before. So, so much of us, so many of us come to a time of prayer and we expect to get something out of it. We expect, I think it's common for people to expect that we will feel prayerful or we will feel at peace or we will feel God's love or God will speak to us, whatever the heck that means. And very often we come to our prayer corner, our prayer mat, our prayer chair, uh, with a whole bunch of expectations. And those expectations are not always met. And then we wonder what we did wrong or where God is or, you know, is prayer just a waste of time? Yeah. And this is not a new thing. <laughs> it is not. 
So what does Julian have to say about this feeling of barrenness and dryness and unworthiness and lack of certainty that God hears us? Well, she communicates what God then tells her, that he is the ground of her praying. Um, as I as I read this, I, I um, so thinking about her writing in Old English, um, I think about the the connotations of the words. As I like, I'm familiar with them in other languages, and this ground, um, there's like this foundation idea, but also like cause. In Danish, "grund" means cause, like the the proximal cause that prompts something. Um, and so these sorts of resonances are in my mind. And so she, God is saying, I am the ground of your praying. God is, has something that he wants to give us. He makes us want it and he causes us to pray for it. So prayer, I mean, she's presenting prayer as an action of God in us. And then of course we are going to get what we pray for. Um, and so God is not only this foundation, but it is that prayer comes from God in us. This is just absolutely revolutionary to me. I mean, this isn't the first time I've read this, but if you were to tell somebody that God will tell you what to pray for, and then you will pray for it, and then God will give it to you. Can you imagine the reaction that almost every normal, ordinary human being would have to such a statement, to such a position? First of all, if God wants me to get something or have something or be some way, why doesn't God just make that happen? So that's A. Then B, how how do I know that what I'm praying for is from God? I mean, if I'm praying for something, it is that, how do I know that that's for, from God? I mean, if I'm praying that, you know, that, that I pass some test or that my aunt recovers from a disease, is God saying, you know, okay, Marguerite, you know, we want you to pass this test or we want you, your, you want your aunt Ruth to recover from, so pray for it. And then I pray and then it, it's just, it's just. I don't want to say incomprehensible because it's very comprehensible to me, but it is not logical. It doesn't follow. It doesn't follow patterns of experience that people have when they pray for things. And I think in many ways that Julian is saying that what God is telling us to pray for is to be closer to God. And so if, God tells us to pray for that, for holiness, for oneness, for For mercy and grace, mercy and grace. And if we pray for that, then God will give it to us because it was God's idea in the first place. And that is absolutely true. I mean, there is no way that anybody can pray for some sort of insight into God or closest to God or grace, or mercy, or forgiveness, that that will not be granted. That is just that is just 100% guaranteed. But most people, when they are praying, 
they want either one thing, which is a favor in, in of the flesh, as it were. I mean, not to sound, you know, prudish, but, you know, they, they want money or they want a result. They want a result or they want an experience, which is what Chris was talking about a minute ago about wanting some sort of transport into holiness or some feeling of empowerment in piety or something like that. People want, that's, that's what people, those are the two things that people want. I think anyway, when they, when they sit down to pray. Now, Jillian's observation from God the the message from God about how God is the ground of our praying and wills us to want something and makes us to want something and then causes us to pray for it. Um, This reminds me of, uh, there's a, a BBC four radio show called in our time hosted by Melvin Bragg. And he invites on, I'll put a link to this particular episode in the show notes, but he invites on, experts, usually professors, three professors from a particular subject to talk to him about stuff. And and they're great. They're they're one of my favorite radio shows because he's such a, a smart he's just smart enough that he knows what questions to ask and he's just um uh inexpert enough that I don't feel left behind when I'm listening. So the episode that I was listening to the other day, actually while doing my mulching was the episode on free will. And I have wrestled with the concept of free will or with the, the, the concept of not having free will for a long time. And have never really been able to wrap my mind around it, especially in its expression in kind of Augustinianism, maybe not Augustine himself, but certainly those who have followed on like Calvin. Um, uh, But they were able to describe it in this episode in a way that I hadn't really been able to wrap my mind around before, for which I'm grateful. I'm still wrestling with it, but it's this, um, this idea that if if the whole of the universe is um, governed by mechanical principles, you know, uh, a billiard ball hits another billiard ball and you can tell which you can predict what the trajectory is going to be because they're just responding to fixed um, laws of the universe, then everything within creation is also subject to those same forces. So in a sense, the argument goes, everything, including our own experience of reality, is um, is just mechanically determined. Everything is set in motion from the Big Bang, or from the moment of creation, or those are the same thing, um, depending on your perspective. And so everything is set in motion. Everything is predetermined. That doesn't necessarily line up with our experience of reality because we believe that we have choice. But the problem is, as the, the people in this show said, there's absolutely no way 
to verify determinism because the only way you could scientifically verify whether there is such a thing as free choice is to live in a universe in which two different choices can be observed at the same time and they can't. So the fact that I am sitting here with a glass of water next to me instead of a cup of tea, I, I believe that I chose which of those two things to bring. But I can't test that because I don't live in a universe in which I have both a glass of water and a mug of tea here at the same time. So my experience is that I chose this glass of water. But the, the fact is that I chose a glass of water whether I feel like I chose it or not. And so it's all very complicated, and I still don't wrap my mind around it. But somehow this ties in with what Julian is saying about the, the predisposition to desire certain things. If I will to pray favorably for, um, for the two of you or for our listeners or, or because it's in the discourse out there right now for our president and the first lady who have uh, the coronavirus right at the moment and people have been arguing about that, um, that somehow that desire is preordained. And so my praying is simply an, a playing out of God's plan for my life which seems very satisfying if your goal is to have God be the ultimate controller and supreme governor of the whole universe and feels very unsatisfying if we want to preserve morality, moral responsibility. Because if we live in a world in which everything is predetermined, then we can't live in a world in which people choose good or evil. And I don't know if we want to live in that universe. I um, there's a whole lot in there. Sorry, <laughs> there is. There's a whole lot. Um, yeah. I think um, something that has been important for me to keep a hold on as I've tried to navigate the question of free will is the concept of non-competitive agency that. God doing something and me choosing to do something are not mutually exclusive. Um, and I think, I think that stems from an, from the idea that God is not a thing among things. Um, God is the source of all being. And so if God were a thing among things, then he would be one billiard ball hitting me as a billiard ball, causing the, the result. And that, that would, that's a, like a competitive sense of agency where like God actually caused that. Um, and, and I didn't have free will in the trajectory of the, um, like there's, there's no way to parse that in which me as a billiard ball have agency. But God is not another billiard ball. God is what sustains me as a billiard ball. Um, and it, this, this, it, it yields a, a paradox that I'm not sure we can fathom. Um, 
in which like God ordaining things, causing things to be as they are, um, is a different kind of causation, a different kind of agency than us choosing tea or water. Um, and so they can, they're not, they're not competitive that they can both be the case. Um, and I won't, I won't pretend to like <laughs> understand that at a deep level. Um, but I think where it is most helpful for me is reminding me that God is not a thing and that God causing something to be is not coercive. That I can, I can have agency, moral agency, material agency, um, and God can still be sovereign at the same time. That's good, Jan. I, I, I agree that that's hard to comprehend. Um, what I've, what I've heard or read is that God is not a being, but God is being, which is probably way too abstract um, to get my mind around. I've heard I, and read so many times in Julian, all things come from God. She says this, I don't even know how many times, but many, many times throughout the revelations. And it's just settled in on me that all things come from God. And I could say that um, the reason that I, that the reason that I'm wearing this particular sweater is because God said that I should be wearing this particular sweater or the reason that I, um, prayed today for the repose of the soul of my sister-in-laws because God wanted me to do that. I mean, it, it could just, it can go all over the place, but the bottom line for me is that all things come from God. And when she says here, um, he himself has already appointed to us from without beginning. That's another key phrase in her writing that comes again and again and again from eternity, from always, from without beginning, from without end. Her concept of eternity seems to be so key in her theology and in her understanding of, of God and the world. And that's, that's another, that's another big thing for me too. I think like, yeah, the all things come from God that is inescapable in Julian. I think it's also inescapable that we have a choice. We have agency in our relationship with God. Like we, she, she talks about God wishing us to turn. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we 
turn, I don't think she views that, even though it comes from God, she does not view that as coercive, as though God were exerting as an actor his agency on us to make us do something. Um, so she, she holds these together. God, all things come from God, and we are actors who make choices even in our relationship with God. Um, and those two coexist in Julian. It's a very Augustinian tension. Um, and I think, I, I think it would be fair to say that after Augustine, the Western tradition has been trying to figure out how to hold this tension. Um, Calvin did it one way. Aquinas does it another. Molin does it another. Um, but I think Julian has us just hold it. I mean, she's, she's, she's a theologian, but she's not a scholastic theologian. She's, I don't think of her as a systematic theologian. She's not, she's not trying to come up with a philosophical framework where we can wrap our heads around this. Right. Um, but she is inviting us um, to to hold these things together and the and the the prayer what she's saying in prayer here is that God is the ground of our prayer he is he is where it comes from at a deep level um, but I don't think she's saying that to the exclusion of us deciding to pray for something or deciding how to pray for something I agree. I think here in chapter 41, Julian is being a theologian, but she's being a spiritual theologian. She's talking specifically not about ontology and epistemology and free will and all this stuff. She's talking particularly about the, the experience of the quality of prayer and specifically about the experience of having a discipline of prayer that appears to bear fruit other than what we expect. And what do we do with that? What do we do with the mystery that we pray for things? We, we request things of God that appear not to come true or that appear to unfold in a different way than we expect, which frankly is an age old question. I know a lot of people who have left Christianity behind because they prayed to God for X, Y, and Z. They didn't get it. And so they said, well, God is either not listening to my prayers or doesn't exist or does exist and does listen to my prayers, but doesn't care about me. And off they go. So it's not like it's uh, an academic question. It's, um, um, I mean, it's, it's of key importance, uh, to any understanding of, of how prayer works. Uh, it, it's uh, this particular bit about the ground of the praying. It is my will that thou have, have something. Next I make thee to want it. And afterward I cause thee to pray for it. Um, should in my book here have a footnote that takes us right to Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the spirit also helps us in our weakness for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, 
but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. That it is yes. one of the ways to understand the Spirit's presence in our lives is that holy motivation that causes uh, a desire for a connection between our experience of reality and the divine will. Um, and she captures, she captures the role of the spirit in her definition of prayer. She gives a surprisingly pithy definition of prayer. It's page 94 in the orange book. If you have that praying is a true gracious lasting intention of the soul wand and made fast to the will of our Lord by the sweet secret working of the Holy Spirit. And so there, I think she's got to have that Romans bit in mind yeah, that it is yeah, the spirit within us. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think her, what she's, what she's trying to get us to think about in God being the ground of our prayer is that it is the spirit praying in us and also our prayer does not mechanistically bring about a result so it she says at the top of that page here we can see then that it is not our prayer that is the cause of the goodness and grace that he does for us but god's own characteristic goodness and so by grounding our prayer in God, it is taking, <laughs> taking the wind out of our sails if we think that we are accomplishing things or bringing things about through our prayer. Mm-hmm. Or that we have skill in praying. Yeah. Because this is not about skill at all. Yeah. And there's, there are a great many consolations that come out of this awareness. Um, and there are two or three that pop to the top of my mind, and I meant to write them down uh, before we met, but then I got caught up doing something else. So the first one is that this relieves from us the individual responsibility for taking care of the whole needs of the world. God will always do the very best for the greatest love and the greatest flourishing of the greatest part of creation, even if we were to do nothing. So the responsibility doesn't lie on our shoulders. People are not going to live or die based solely on my prayer or your prayer. That's simply not the way it happens. So anyone who's out there feeling guilty because they didn't, quote, pray hard enough, be relieved of that guilt. God is in control of everything, and it is not your responsibility to rescue everybody from the turbulent waters of of arbitrary life. God's got it. So the second thing is the awareness that prayer is just as much about molding our lives to become more like God, more like Christ, than it is about us imposing our will on the order of creation. Again, God is automatically going to do what God is going to do, which is going to be far better than anything that we can consider. Um, because I am not as loving as God, and no one, no one listening to this is. Um, so God is going to see and know and will and do the best thing possible. 
So for me, a big part of prayer is about allowing myself to be conformed to that so that I can go through life maybe seeing the whole world a little bit more like God does and patterning my life on that, which I think is what Paul is talking about all the way through the New Testament where he talks about it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Let us be conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us put on Jesus, um, that there's this way of understanding the Christian life as becoming more and more like Christ, which is to become more and more the kind of people where our wills and our desires are absolutely lined up in parallel with what God is already doing, because that's going to be the joyful thing, the life-giving thing. It's the thing that brings God joy about our prayer too. Like, and this is one of my favorite sentences in, um, or the favorite phrases in the revelations that then gets picked up in the oblate rule for the order of Julian. Um, most glad and happy is our Lord about our prayer and he watches for it. He wishes to enjoy it because with his grace, it makes us like himself in character as we are in nature. This idea that of, of being, being conformed into the fullness of who we are meant to be, our characters being molded to match our natures, which are like God. Um, and that being a source of joy, not only for us, but for God. Like that is, that is a, a wellspring of joy. That, that work of prayer, which through God conforms us, is an endless source of joy. And God receives our prayer. And as I see it, he accepts it most favorably and highly rejoicing. He sends the prayer up above and places it in a treasury where it shall never perish more eternity. It is there before God with all his holy saints, constantly acceptable, always assisting our needs. And when we shall receive our bliss... Our prayer shall be given to us as an award of joy with endless honor filled favor from him. So our prayers are, to to make this in modern talk, our prayers are gathered up into a, a safe and kept in heaven for us. And then when we get to heaven, our prayers are taken out of the safe and given to us as like some wonderful garment that we'll wear and be all fancy and beautiful. That is how Julian sees our prayer. So how can we, how can we doubt even for a moment that we should be praying? And she goes on then to say, talk about how we should be praying more and more constantly. How can we doubt that we should, should pray all the time when this is what, when this is what happens to our prayer. And so we are, we are conformed in this life and rewarded in the next. Correct. So how are people to structure their prayers? 
What's your advice for people who come to you and say, how should I pray? I know about the daily office. I know about the rosary. I know about, um, you know, keeping a prayer journal or something. But how should I be structuring my desires, my requests? Or I'll put it a different way. When somebody says to you, Marguerite, will you pray for me? I've got something happening, you know, an important meeting coming up this Tuesday. Will you keep me in your prayers? I've got a struggle going on. Will you keep me in your prayers? What do those prayers look like or feel like or sound like? I pray for the person. I pray for God to be with that person and for God's will to be done for that person with that person. Um, I think that if you ever pray for anyone or anything, God's will has to be the final, the final statement for that. And and it's not, it's not always easy for my noon prayer. I always pray, pray for my children in that. And I go, I rant on and on and on about have them do this and, see this and find truth here and peace there and love there and blah, 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 blah. And at the end of it, I always say, and let your will be done for them. And that can feel hard sometimes, but structuring, I don't think apart from that, I don't think it matters if we're, if we're interceding for someone with God, I don't think it matters what we say or how we say it. Um, I think that it's, I think it's important to get a feeling for the person. I think it's important to put that feeling in front of God. And let that let that be your prayer with or without words and the reason i think that is because i think that because for me prayer is that feeling it is that uh it is that letting go of my own self my own intention my own presence in the situation in any kind of situation and just letting that person be presented to God for God's will to be done. Agreed. I, um, when I tell somebody I pray for them, I do have set words I use. I have, um, it's a tiny, the briefest of liturgies and that, but that functions mostly to focus my attention as I think about that person, um, and what they need, even though I don't know what they need most of the time and ask God to give them what they need. Um, and that is what most of my petitions for myself have become. 
um, not not asking so much for specific things because a lot of the time I'm frankly too baffled and spiritually dizzy to know what to ask for. Um, but just saying, help, give me what I need. I mean, it's like John Cashin tells the monks to make their prayer. Oh God, make speed to save me. Oh Lord, make haste to help me. That that is, that is the kernel of prayer in Cashin's mind. And we, we start our daily offices with that. Oh God, make speed to save us. Oh Lord, make haste to help us. And that, that has become, when I am praying for things for myself, that has become, that ends up being where I sit, is I know I'm not okay, and I need something, and I don't know what that is. I don't know what that something is. Um, so God makes speed to save me. And so when I'm, when I'm praying for others, I have words that I say, yeah, our father, the Hail Mary, like, but those function to try to bring me to that posture with relation to the person I'm praying for is not only, not only do I not know what I need, I don't know what they need, but God makes speed to save us. That comes, of course, from Psalm 70, if anyone wants to look it up. Um, what else do we have to say about prayer? We're drawing near to the end of our time. She underlines, um, again, after she talks about it conforming our character to our nature in God, that it is beneficial even though we perceive it not. Um, even though you sense nothing, see nothing, think you can achieve nothing, because there's dryness and barrenness and sickness and feebleness, then is thy prayer completely pleasing to me, though it seems to give thee but little pleasure. And thus all thy living is prayer in my eyes. And that tying back to suffering, um, gives another tool, I think in our spiritual toolbox for thinking about suffering. Um, you know, I was, I'm, I'm in this class on the prophetic literature and we've been working on Jeremiah and this concept of lament as a faithful response to suffering. Um, and lament and how, I mean, it was last week, I think we were talking about lament doesn't really bring comfort. Lament doesn't make us feel better. At least not always. 
Um, but it is still a faithful response um, because it, it is prayer. This, this, this response to suffering, our prayer may not bring us comfort. It may be a, a cry of lament. Um, and it, it, it may, we may feel sick and feeble and dry and barren and not feel like God is saying anything back to us. But what Julian's saying here is that even, even when our prayer looks like that, even when we don't feel like we're praying because we're suffering, insofar as we, we look to God or attempt to look to God, that is prayer. Even those aspects of our life are prayer. That's a huge comfort to me. It's a common theme through many of the spiritual writers. I mean, in the scriptures, of course, the experience of Job, the experience of a lot of the prophets, um, arguably the experience of Paul um, at, at different um, different moments, kind of reading between the lines. He's not always overjoyed <laughs> in the middle of his life. And then certainly... Um, you know, St. John of the Cross's Dark Night of the Soul is probably the best known description of um, of what to do with this sense that sometimes prayer feels like nothing, feels like seeing nothing, feels like achieving nothing, feels like dryness and barrenness and sickness and feebleness. And that again and again, various spiritual writers who are wiser than I talk about how this is actually a necessary stage in growth. And if there's a common theme, they all describe it in a slightly different way. You know, mother Teresa, Teresa of Lisieux. Um, if there seems to be a common theme behind it all, and I don't understand it because I have not made much progress in my spiritual life myself, um, that this phase of dryness and barrenness is part of detaching or decoupling the idea that we are praying to God primarily because we think we can gain something from it. Mm -hmm. And so long as we think that our prayer to God is mostly about what I can get for myself, then it's not yet oriented the right way. The same way that there are many reasons to have a romantic relationship with somebody but insofar as you think I'm only dating that person because I get what I need, that relationship is not a very healthy relationship. But if you can reach that point where um, the relationship is one where you take delight in what you can offer and in how the two of you flourish together, then you're beginning to make progress. But we've got to detach this sense of um, what, what what's in it for me. And the only way to do that is to have a period of time where prayer doesn't feel like it's all that great because then we can persevere through it and begin to see that there are, there's a whole, a whole other um, level or layer of fruitfulness. that I hope to one day experience. <laughs> so, um, 
Yeah. There's something else that I was going to say about that, but I don't know what it was. So I will stop talking right here. I think the one other thing I would want to add um, is that here again, she points us back to Jesus and reminding us like what all this is about Um, for it pleases God that we work both in our prayer and in good living by his help and his grace, reasonably with good sense, keeping our strength for him until we have him whom we seek in fullness of joy, that is, Jesus. This is all all about Jesus for her. It, it, it It leads back to Jesus. Um, and she, she points us back to the 15th showing, thou shalt have me for thy reward. Um, and that, I think, her is a, a, a guaranteed outcome of this. We may not receive the, the spiritual solace, the comfort, we may be dry and barren, um, at the end of this is Jesus. Well, she also says, and sometimes when the heart is dry and feels nothing or else by temptation of our enemy, which we really shouldn't forget that Satan would really love us not to pray, would really love us to give up. Okay. Um, Or else by temptation of our enemy, then the heart is driven by reason and by grace to call upon our Lord with voice recounting his blessed passion and his great goodness. So she turns it right back to the cross, not surprisingly. Yeah. And she mentions this right after uh, a few words on Thanksgiving. We've talked, I think, a lot about intercession and petition, these aspects of of prayer. But um, then this is in the Orange Book, page 96, where she's talking about Thanksgiving, the true inner awareness with great reverence and loving awe. Um, it reminds me the other day, my bishop was saying, you know, in the in the prayers of the people, one of the forms of the prayers of the people, there's a place where the people are um, invited or there's a space provided for people to say out loud their thanksgivings. And a couple of times he said he's he's done the midweek service, the midweek liturgy at the cathedral, and he's... He said, you know, we're not going to keep going until I hear at least six Thanksgivings. (laughs) And he'll just wait patiently until six people say things out loud that they're thankful for. I think it's easier for us to name the things that we, the intercessions that we want to pray for. Absolutely. um, Than it is for Thanksgivings. But I think Thanksgiving is, is, I don't want to put percentages on it. But I think that the the fuller our prayer lives, the more Thanksgiving takes over the center of it. Um, because the closer we draw to the constant awareness, to the recollection of the presence of God, then the greater should our sense be of of gratitude and awe for that. Um, 
so yes, yeah, she goes from this kind of this this observation of the primacy of Thanksgiving, even when it doesn't feel um, uh, as though it flows easily, even when the heart is dry and, and feels nothing, then we should, uh, driven by reason and by grace, even if you're not driven by love, <laughs> you should come up with whatever tool it will take you to uh, to give thanks for, among other things, the passion of our Lord, which is the thing that we're the most thankful for, and then all the other things that we're thankful for. So um, that's probably by way of saying it would be a, a great starting point for anyone listening to this who wants to know how to pray better, to spend five minutes every night or to sit down with a piece of paper and write one through five on it and put five things down that you're thankful for and don't do anything else until you filled in those five blanks and specific things, not, not generalities that you can, right. Yeah. The same things that you can put down day after day, right? Because then you will start to take those for granted. But what today, um, like right before we started recording this, I had, frankly, a really good egg salad sandwich. I'm a big fan of egg salad sandwiches. I know that's controversial, but <laughs> egg salad sandwiches made with chives from my very own yard that are still sending up little sprouts and shoots. It's fantastic. It's a, it's a spiritual practice that is really popular among AA sponsors, gratitude lists. Oh, yeah. um, and I think that's great advice for people who are looking to like figure out how to structure their prayer because AA is a place for spiritual beginners. Mm-hmm. Like the, 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 the practices you learn in recovery they're the practices of spiritual beginners. And one of the key ones is giving constant and specific thanks. That's good. Uh, I gave a talk at, at our parish one time on prayer, and one of the people in the audience was just desperate, like raising his hand and, you know, this is all well and good, but... Tell me about grace before meals is what he wanted to know about. And, you know, it's the sort of thing that maybe you grew up and you took it for granted. And it then in adulthood, it kind of went away. Or maybe it's just wrote prayers, you know, that you just love, bless these gifts and us to our to your service, et cetera, that sort of thing. But we had a long conversation in the group about grace and what it could be. And I can tell you from my own personal life that I abandoned grace for many, many years. I mean, going to church every single Sunday, but never saying grace before meals. Never, ever, ever. And it took me a year plus to get back in the habit of saying grace. And it is so wonderful. I mean, you talk about somebody beginning prayer, grace before meals, and just just make something up. You don't have to, it doesn't have to be, you know, one of the 27 graces that you'll get, you know, on Google or something like that. Just make stuff up. You can sound like grandpa Walton, you know, you just 
just say what, what is in your heart. Thank you for the food that is before me, dear Jesus, and whatever else, you know, whatever else pops into your mind. Amen. Amen. I uh, have a friend whose grace is simply some variation of, I didn't grow this, but I'm going to eat it. And that's uh, and actually like a perfect little piece of sort of mindfulness about yeah. the web of connectivity that brings the food together. Um, and he's actually uh, a pretty secular person, but. Um, oh, even an atheist can say grace. I, I yeah. absolutely, you know, stand by that. Yeah. Anyway, here's the very end of chapter 41, which seems like a pretty good way to wrap up. And the strength of our Lord's word is directed into the soul and enlivens the heart and introduces it by his grace into true practices and causes it to pray most blessedly and truly to delight in our Lord. That is a most blessed, loving thanksgiving in his sight. Thank you for listening to this episode. To find out more about Dame Julian, the Revelations of Divine Love, the Order of Julian of Norwich, or us, check the show notes to this episode. You can reach me, Chris Arnold, the producer of this series, at Apple Tree Pods on Twitter, or on Facebook, you can find the page Apple Tree Podcasts. That's all for now. We'll talk to you soon. May God bless you.